Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Good morning. My name's Tom Downing, and I'm going to be sharing God's Word with you uh, this morning. If you're like me, um, I've gone through, um, I've been a Christian a long time, and, and I can look back through my life, uh, peaks and valleys and, and peaks of where God has really spoken to me, and I've learned things, and, you know, kind of like aha moments, and it's, you know, it's, it's fabulous, especially when you're reminded of things. And, and last, last week we had a home group leaders meeting, uh, getting ready to do home group, so that's a little advertisement for that, you know, as you're planning out your schedule for the winter, you should make a a slot available for getting involved in a home group. But one of the, I think one of the gentlemen there mentioned about a chronological Bible. And I don't know if you, if you know what that is, but it's, it just takes uh, the the scriptures and puts it in um, chronological order. And it, it uh, is really a a fascinating way to to get a, a, you know, maybe a better understanding or a different understanding of God's word. But I, when I moved back up to Alaska some 35 years ago, um, I went to the church that I had grown up in as a child, and, and I met the, the new pastor there, and he and I, we really uh, hit it off well. And, and then I was asked to teach the senior high Sunday school class, which was starting that next Sunday, and I was handed the material. And it was a chronological account of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of the life of Christ. And it was just... It was just a fascinating time for me teaching that class, um, seeing the progression of Christ's life and seeing all four of the Gospels. And Because each of the Gospels have a little bit different slant on the life of Christ, but seeing it all put together, was just, it just really spoke to me and it really was you know, one of those peaks in my, in, my Christian, in my Christian life. And so as he was sharing, he may be doing a life group using a chronological Bible, that, you know, that just brought that to mind. But, you know, the thing, the thing that I learned was I was just overwhelmed teaching that class by the, the beautiful and wonderful um, uh, picture, the words painted of Jesus. And I was impressed with his character and the compassion of his heart and his morality, all which attracted people of all kinds wherever he went. The serenity of his spirit was demonstrated showing how he moved through the the masses, with some adoring and worshiping him, and others, you know, despising and, and, and hating him. But Jesus responded calmly and quietly, no matter the situation or how badly the people treated him. Numerous times, times the religious leaders and scholars of the day would come to him to try to entrap him and trip him up and build their case in order to kill him. But every time he left them speechless, and unable to respond, showing us his disciplined will and his complete focus on a higher calling. And finally, the, the most uh, convicting part of Jesus' life that I saw was how his ministry, and I, and I still see it today when I read through the Gospels, how his ministry would go from, he would speak to large groups of people, and then the next scene, he'd be speaking to just uh, uh, an individual person. And it just really impressed on me that both Christ is, and, and 
concerned and motivated to speak into the whole mass, but he's also interested in me, who I am, and you, and who you are. And... um, um, and usually these these persons they you know these individual persons they had committed crimes or they violated some religious rule or engaged in some moral sin or or possessed some disease that society or religious rules demanded separation from the community but jesus 's response was always total acceptance, love, and he totally embraced them. This is the life of Jesus, and for most of us in this room i I believe that this is what we want for ourselves, not a sporadic thing that many of us can self-generate for short bursts of time, but a life that is consistently God-focused with the abiding character of Jesus in our life. Scripture is clear that the, the character that this character of Jesus is to be uh, is to be ours, and not just for the preacher or the elders or the, you know, little old white-haired ladies, but it's to be for every one of us, this life of Jesus in our life as we grow in our faith, both, both for our personal benefit and for our witness to others, because that's what brings people to Christ. You know, it's very seldom our words, but it's the life that they see in us. So, so how do I get this? How does this become a permanent uh, God-generated reality in my life during both the good times and, most importantly, through the, through the bad times. The Apostle Paul, in the passage I'm going to share with you this morning, um, gives us a, a passage that I believe demonstrates um, you know, the, the power that we can have to live that kind of life. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. Um, verses 7 through, 7 through 15. 2 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power, and that I'll just define that, that transcendent power is a power that's beyond the ordinary. So we have this, this transcendent power in earthen vessels that belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you since we have the same spirit of faith as, as he had who wrote, I believed and so I spoke, we too believe, so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence, where it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So let's dig into this passage and see what Paul's trying to to teach us here. We have these earthen vessels, not very complimentary back in those days. They would take the clay and the mud and they would make the pots that they would, you know, carry water and all kinds of things in. And those earthen pots, those clay pots, Paul's referring that that's you and me. That's all we are in God's eyes. We're 
earthen pots. And, and, you know, a pot or a vessel, it's designed to hold something. And this is a wonderful description of God's design for each of our lives, for we are designed to hold something as well. We were created with a God-shaped vacuum in each one of us. The cynic of Christianity will often say, well, you're a Christian because you need Christianity as a, as a crutch. The cynic looks at our relationship with God as a, a sign of weakness. But, you know, I, I see it as what a privilege that I was created with a vacuum in me to hold the creator God, to hold the creator God if I'm willing to do one thing, and that is to call on the name of Jesus and ask him into my life, ask him into my flesh. With Jesus inside of us, in a miraculous way, he begins to transform us in a powerful way, transforming our basic humanity, that clay pot, that clay vessel, into the character of Jesus Christ. So why doesn't this work for many of us? Because too many of us have taken our pots, and particularly when trials have come our way, and we have the mindset that, yeah, you know, I have Jesus in my pot, but, you know, that's for the, you know, the church things, you know, Sunday morning and, and all that. But, hey, you know, I got, I got issues and I got problems going on, you know, like, uh, you know, I need a, I need a spouse, I need, I need a job. You know, my neighbor, you know, she's been slandering my name, and I'm going to get even with her because the last thing I do. The bills are piling up. i got to do something. And the list goes on and on of all the trials and issues that we got going on. We have violated one of uh, Jesus' main instructions found in Matthew 6, 28 about how we are to handle all the trials and the issues that come on in our life. Matthew 6, 28, let me read that to you, through 33. And why are you anxious about clothing? Because the, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O men of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be yours as well. That passage, is, a, is a, you should um, read the whole context of that passage because in addition to just the clothing and the feeding, it lists quite a few things that God is willing to do for us and, in fact, all things he's willing to do for us. But Jesus wants us from this passage to be singly focused on him, but instead we start seeking, figuring out all sorts of ways to get what we need. We want st- we want stuffing these things into our pots, confining Jesus to, to you know, the, the church things, not the, the real important things in my life that I got to take care of for myself. So 
So back to, back to verse 7 of, our, of my passage. This treasure, this transcendent power, God needs to be the only thing in our pot. He says that transcendent power has to be the only thing in our pot. Why? Why? To show that all that I do is dependent on God's power and not on us. See, God wants to use the trials and the tribulations that we go through to be a manifestation of what God can do in a life. But, you know, that's hard, isn't it, especially during trials? We so desperately feel that we are needed to help God out. Why? Because for most of us, we don't totally trust him to take care of us as good as I can take care of myself. Until we get to the point where we can solely rely on his transcendent power that resides in the believer through Jesus and not rely on ourselves, we will be missing out on the fullness of life that Jesus has for us. You may say, um, you know, Tom, you know, you just don't understand how serious my problems are. It's, it's hard to, re, to rely totally on Jesus. You know, I've never seen him. You know, I hear about him when I come to church. But, but let's look at verses 8 and 9 of our passage. It says that, you know, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. That's a pretty all-encompassing description of 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 a life of, of trials, I believe, and and you know you know where we're, where we're you know afflicted, we're perplexed, we're persecuted, and we're struck down. But something else is going on here for the believer connected with Jesus Christ. We see His transcendent power at work in us, power beyond the ordinary. So, what does this power do? First of all. This power is not ordinary. It is different than any other kind of power that we know about. Therefore, it is wrong to expect it to be dramatically visible. It's a quiet power that is released in quiet ways, and yet what it accomplishes is fabulous. This, this transcendent power is the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. It's the resurrection power. And I would challenge you to find something in Scripture that describes how this power works. It just does it. Now, don't confuse it in, when you look in the Gospels. Yeah, there's some examples of some dramatic thing happening. But those were the one at the end of Matthew. That's talking about what they, when they, after Jesus was resurrected from the grave, the angels came to the two ladies to tell them what happened. You know, the guards, they had no recollection of what happened to Jesus. They didn't see anything happen. But this resurrection power, this transcendent power of God rose Jesus from the dead. And that's what God is wanting to put in each one of us to help us deal with the trials and the tribulations that we face. But here is the transcendent power of God. We are afflicted, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we're not forsaken. And we are struck down, but we're not destroyed. This is the way God works in our lives. The remarkable thing about this 
and the place where we struggle is that it takes both of these. It takes both the, the trial and the victory. It takes the weakness in order to have the strength. We all want to see the power of God in our lives, but we want it to come out of untroubled, peaceful, calm circumstances. We want to move through life protected from all the dangers and all the difficulties. But that is not what God has in mind for us when he is at work to mold you into the man and to the woman of God that he desires for us to become. If we are going to live for Jesus, we got to expect to be pressed down, to be at wit's end, to be persecuted, and to be knocked down. Now, what I'm talking about here is contrary to what I call prosperity theology. It basically claims, prosperity theology basically claims that you come to Christ and you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. The theology that I personally believe comes from the pit of hell. But what happens to these people who hear this sort of doctrine? Well, of course I want to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Uh, But what happens as soon as they commit their life to Christ with this type of teaching, something bad happens, and they begin to question, well, what in the world's going on here? I was told this wasn't going to happen. And so they throw it all out, including the need for having Jesus Christ in your life. Scripture teaches us that Christians can get cancer, have financial collapse, go through difficulties, family separations, divorce, problems of every sort. In spite of all they do, no matter how close to the Lord they walk, they can have these difficulties because out of them God wants to demonstrate a different attitude, a different reaction than other people have. He wants us to demonstrate that no matter what is going on, that we have an obvious love and joy and peace about our life that can never be explained in terms of you but must be explained only in terms of God at work in you. So how do we do this? Let's look at verse 10. <coughs> Excuse me. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Notice that the life of Jesus always rests upon the death of Jesus. So that... You know, we must have in our experience the death of Jesus in order to have the life of Jesus. Let's go on to verse 11. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. If you are a Christian, it goes without saying that you want the life of Jesus in your life. But the key word in this verse is manifest that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh, which means it's to be seen by others. So while we are experiencing the death for Jesus' sake, such as trials and persecutions, financial woes, cancer, others are seeing what? They're seeing Jesus being manifested in my life because that transcendent power is at work at me if I have allowed Christ to fill me. So let's look at Colossians 1.11. Turn to Colossians 1.11. We're just going to look at the first half of that verse first. Now, Paul's praying for his friends in Colossae that they may be strengthened 
with all power according to God's glorious might. And that'd be pretty nice to have Paul praying that, you know, I'd be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. So, um, so what, what, what do you think he's praying for them to be strengthened with God's glorious might about? To maybe go out and do great miracles or astonish the people with tremendous magnetism or preach a great sermon to a great crowd of people? No, Paul is not praying about that. Let's finish that verse. I'll read the whole verse again. Paul's praying that they be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might until all endurance and patience with joy. That's what Paul is praying for these folks for, that they be able to endure with patience and with joy. Ladies and gentlemen, here is where the power is, is at work and is manifested in us. This is the life of Jesus. So, so how, do I, how do I get this, this, this life of Jesus? Here's your answer. The secret, Paul says, is our consent to sharing the dying of Jesus. Let's go back to verse 10. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So always carrying in the body the dying of Jesus. What does that mean? In order that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. What he means here is that, the, is that he doesn't mean that, you know, like these people that you usually see around Easter time, people reenacting being nailed to a cross or in other places where they get themselves flogged. It doesn't mean any of that kind of stuff at all. But what was Jesus like on the cross? He was not powerful. He was not impressive. He was not significant. He was not being applauded by the multitudes who listened to his every word just days earlier. No, the cross was a place of physical weakness, of rejection by the proud and arrogant world around him. It was a place of obscurity, a place where he was willing to lose everything and trust God with the rest. This is what we're talking about, you know, dying to Jesus. If you are willing to give up all the things that make you look important to other people, to take the place of obscurity if necessary, trusting God to use it however he will, that is part of dying to Jesus. If you're willing to end dependence on yourself and rest upon the willingness of God to be at work in your life without any flash or demonstration, if you are willing, you can have the life of Jesus. If you are willing to give up the satisfaction of your own flesh. For example, we all want to be serene of of spirit and gentle and compassionate of heart, but what do we also want to do? We also want to be able to tell people off when when we feel they're getting out of line. That gives us some great kind of pleasure. But if you're willing to give that up, you can have the life of Jesus. We want the kingdom of God, but we also want our own personal rights as well. We want to be able to, to challenge anyone who fringes on our rights, but that puts us in conflict with the life of Jesus. For Paul says, again, always bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus in order that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. All of this takes an, an intentional decision on, on our part. Do you know that Jesus had an escape clause from going through with the cross. He could have bailed at any time. 
Turn to Matthew 26, 53. Matthew 26, 53. Jesus had just been arrested, and, and, um, and he said to them, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Now, I don't know exactly how many 12 legions are, but I think they're more than enough to get the job done. So instead of calling on 12 legions of angels, instead he walked through the pain because he knew it was God's will for him to do that. He had more than just the pain and the rejection and the agony of the cross. He knew that he was going to endure the wrath of God. In addition to all the pain, he was going to take upon himself God's wrath, not the wrath that he deserved, but the wrath that you and I deserved upon himself for everyone who puts their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. You can't do this on your own, but you can get to the point of telling God, yes, I am willing, please empower me to be able to do this. Are you willing to do that? I hope so. It is a prayer that God is so motivated to answer in your life but we have to be willing. So where is all this heading? Let's look at verses 12 and 13. So death is at work in us, but life in you, since we have the same spirit of faith as he had who wrote, I believed and so I spoke. We too believe and so we speak. Paul is quoting from Psalms 116 there, where the psalmist is declaring by faith that the trials and the pressures that he is going through are going to have some effect, some impact in his surroundings. He, he cannot see it. The psalmist is saying here, he cannot see it yet, but he says it's going to be true because God has said it. That is what Paul is trying to teach us as well and to get us to believe it. He says, I don't see the life in you yet, but I know it is coming. We are going through the death. We are going through the pressure and the trials and the tribulations and the heartache. But if you intentionally go through this, trusting only on Jesus, it will have an impact on you, an impact for good, because that's the kind of God that we serve. Verse verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Do you see what's going on here? The same spirit, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, if we choose to die to self, will also raise us up into the presence of God, not only in heaven, but here right now. And finally, Paul concludes with a wonderful picture of where it all comes out, verse 15. For it is... for. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. It comes out with what? Amazingly, it comes out with thanksgiving. Here you're going through trials. For some, for some of us here, terrible, tremendous trials. But if you follow these steps, it will come out with increased thanksgiving about the Lord. He is talking about people who have gone through great sorrow, deep hurt, real heartache, 
But in the midst, as they have cried out to God, cried out to God for strength and have found his comfort, they have known and trusted his love, and the result has been such an inner joy and peace and strengthening in the midst of the trial that they cannot help but give thanks to God for the whole thing, how the whole thing came about. Decision Magazine published uh, an article that I've had for some time, and I just wanted to, uh, it was a, a letter to the, to the editor of Decision Magazine. It's a Billy Graham publication. <clears throat> for a long time, I've been bitter about life. It seemed to have dealt me a dirty blow. For since I was 12 years old, I have been waiting for death to close in on me. It was at that time I learned I had muscular dystrophy. I fought hard against the disease and exercised hard, but to no avail. I only grew weaker. All I could see was what I had missed. My friends went away to college, then got married and started having families of their own. When I lay in bed at night thinking, despair would creep from the dark corners to haunt me. Life was meaningless. In March of last year, my my mother brought home from our library Billy Graham's book, World of Flame. I started reading it, and as I read it, I realized that I wanted God in my life. I wanted there to be a meaning to life. I wanted to receive this deep faith and peace. All All I know is that now my life has changed, and now I have joy in living. No longer is the universe chaotic. No longer does life have no goal. No longer is there no hope. There is instead God who so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I continue to grow weaker. I am close to being totally helpless and am in pain most of the time. But sometimes I am so glad I am alive that it's hard to keep myself from bursting at the seams. I can see for the first time the beauty all around me, and I realize how very lucky I am. Despair is such a waste of time when there is joy, and lack of faith is such a waste of time when there is God. This is the kind of thanksgiving that glorifies God. The the kind of thanksgiving is that is a result of this power that God wants to put in each one of our pots. Out of the midst of the pain, the pressure, the heartache, the perplexity, perplexities of life, there comes a, a joy, a strength, a faith, and a love that makes clear that the power of God is not coming from us, but from God. There's no other explanation for it. That is what impresses the world. May God help us to live like that. Let me pray for us as we close and the orchestra comes up. Lord, I know that there are many people here who are going through struggles and pressures, dangers and trials. How our hearts uh, long to cry out to, to to deliver them from that, to take them away from it, to not let them go through these things. But instead, may we rather learn, Lord, that, that attitude that Jesus had the night before he was to endure the cross and experience the agony of rejection, the pain, the death, and most of all, taking upon himself the wrath 
that each of us here this morning so rightly deserved, where he prayed, if it be possible, may this cup of wrath pass from me, Lord. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. May, may this be our prayer as well. In Jesus' name, amen.